This episode of Commentary, Trek Stars, is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 19 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today we are going to be um, returning to Damon Lindelof, uh, looking at uh, some movies that he's written um, since we covered the movies that he had written. And today we're going to be looking at Star Trek Into Darkness and... uh, Next week, we're going to be looking at World War Z. But before we get into that, uh, the Parsec Awards were last weekend, Sunday, uh, at DragonCon down in Atlanta. Uh, you weren't able to attend, but uh, Drew and I went down there. Uh, we, we were nominated, um, you and me, for um, this show particularly, mm-hmm. was nominated for the content creation category yes and uh we lost no yeah oh we lost to story wonk sunday which is a show by lonnie diane rich and alistair stevens sorry who um talk about writing craft of writing so yeah they won I, i you know i've listened to to their show and it's it's very good Going into the weekend, I was like, they're going to win. They're going to win. And apparently, I'm much better at predicting award um, outcomes than I am at uh, podcasting, because they won. But uh, congratulations to them. And and it wasn't a complete wash of a weekend, because uh, I, I did get to meet a couple of our listeners, hmm. Jake and Eric who have both written into us before and they were uh down there uh actually together um and they came by and said hi and actually stayed and watched the the ceremony with us hmm. and cool. and it, it, it was really cool so thanks to to Jake and Eric um for for doing that we really appreciate that and here's one more thing that's a bummer I would have liked meeting them what was that that's a bummer I would have liked meeting them yeah. anyway all right next yeah. time I will Make absolutely sure I've got that time cleared. Okay, cool. Well, one one other thing though here. Okay, now usually when they're they're reading off the finalists, right? They'll say things like you know Story Wonk Sunday, and there'll be a smattering of applause, and then they'll say Commentary Trek Stars, and there'll be a smattering of applause, you know. And then occasionally, if there's someone in the room who you know knows someone who who is nominated, then everyone's like woohoo. Like uh, one of the other um, shows in the category, I forget which one, but they they published like a an online um, audio magazine where they have various short stories, and I think a lot of people in the room 
um, had written short stories for this magazine. So of course, you know, when when their name is announced, everyone's like, "Yeah, woohoo!" You know, go you guys. Um, but for us, I'm like, well, there's obviously no one else here aside from you know Eric and Jake. So um, I wasn't expecting anything. And then for both us and Standard Orbit, when our names were read, there was someone in the back going like, "Woohoo!" Oh, your mom was there. No, she wasn't. What the hell? I assumed that it was our <laughs> our friend Josh who was there. Oh yeah, you that know? makes sense. Yeah. But then after the show, but he would have booed. He he might have booed. But then after after the show, <laughs> I ran into Josh, and I'm like, "Were you in the room there?" And they're like, "He's like, no." <laughs> like, why would I come to that? <laughs> um, so so there was someone there, someone in the back of the room who listens to us or listens to Trek FM, who was cheering for us. And I desperately want to know who it was. So if it was you, let us know. It's because I'm curious, you know? Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, enough about uh, our failures and, and whatnot. Let's let's move on to Damon Somebody else's. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I don't, <laughs> I don't think that I don't agree with that, but whatever. Okay. <laughs> So we just talked about Into Darkness last week as part of our J.J. Abrams wrap-up, and I don't think there's really a, a great need to retread that territory. Um, That's what they should have said about the movie. Needless to say, you didn't like it, and I did like it. Um, it's but, not the same thing. So, so let's, needless to say, you thought it was bad, and I thought it was good. I recognize its lack of quality. Okay. But regardless of that, um, it was co-written along with uh, Roberto Orsi and uh, Alex Kurtzman by Damon Lindelof. And I thought that we could talk about something uh, which a number of people have been sort of talking about in recent, uh, well, years, I guess. Uh, spectacle creep, which is a thing. Um, well, which uh, is, I find uh, this interesting. Is this the thing that people are actually using, like, that, that term? Because, like, I, I, I learned it from video games. Right, I guess that's that's where it initially came from. Okay, and now so people are actually now using it in Hollywood now. Yeah, yeah. Like right. I, I, you know, I, I was I was doing some research on it. And people were like, "This is something which happened in in video games," okay. and it's like the type of thing where like now you need to add more. No, I mean the term. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, no, I know. Okay. And and but now what they're they're doing is is saying like it's not just video games where this is happening. It's other places too, like movies. When when the when, when the term was invented for video games, they referenced movies in order to illustrate it simply. Like it's always been going on in everything. Yeah, all of this has happened before, and all of this will happen again. No, I mean it's not new. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, there's an article which uh, was written about a year ago uh, by Scott Brown. Um, which appears, uh, you can find it on, on vulture.com, um, but I think it originally appeared in a magazine or, or newspaper. But in it, he talks to Damon Lindelof about this problem. Now, this was the, the summer that Lindelof had just written, or, or you know the movies that he had written had just been released, Star Trek Into Darkness and World War Z. And while they were huge, monster-sized action blockbusters, they also had endings which sort of fought against what uh, we, we usually see when it comes to spectacle creep. 
And uh, there's some interesting quotes from Lindelof on the subject, which maybe will help to sort of uh, enlighten um, uh, our listeners as to what it is we're trying to talk about. And again, you can find this article on vulture.com. He says, We live in a commercial world where you got to come up with the trailer moments and make the thing feel big and impressive and satisfying, especially in that summer movie theater construct. But ultimately, I do feel, even as a purveyor of it, slightly turned off by this destruction porn that has emerged and become very bold-faced this past summer. And again, guilty as charged. It's hard not to do it, especially because a movie, if properly executed, feels like it's escalating. Once you spend more than $100 million on a movie, you have to save the world. And when you start there and basically say, I have to construct a MacGuffin based on if they shut off this or they close this portal or they deactivate this bomb or they come up with this cure, it will save the world. You are very limited in terms of how you execute that. And in many ways, you can become a slave to it. And again, I make no excuses. I'm just saying you kind of have to start there. In the old days, it was just as satisfying that all Superman had to do was basically save Lois from this earthquake in California. The stakes in that movie are that the San Andreas fault line opens up and half of California is going to fall in the ocean. That felt big enough, but there is a sense of bigger, better, faster, seen it before, done that. It sounds sort of hacky and defensive to say, but it's almost inescapable. It's almost impossible to, for example, not have a final set piece where the fate of the free world is at stake. You basically work your way backward and say, well, the Avengers aren't going to save Guam. They have to save the world. Did Star Trek Into Darkness need to have a gigantic starship crashing into San Francisco? I'll never know, but it sure felt like it did. So then here, you know, Scott Brown, you know, it interjects, you know, Lindelof and the team behind Star Trek Into Darkness always wanted to conclude the sequel with a simple grudge match between two men. But how to earn all that smallness? And Lindelof says, It was always about Spock and Khan duking it out with the stakes being Kirk's life. But there were earlier story iterations where the Klingon fleet was simultaneously heading for Earth to get retribution, only to be turned around via diplomatic intervention by Uhura. We dropped it pretty early on as it didn't feel intimate, cool, or earned. So, with all of that in mind, um, you know, one of the things which, which people oftentimes bring up are the similarities between Into Darkness and Wrath of Khan and how a number of scenes uh, from especially the end of Into Darkness are sort of lifted and adapted from Wrath of Khan to be used in this story. Um, lifted and Google translated into this version. Perhaps. Perhaps that's what it is. And um, I think that that's, that's really interesting in, in a lot of ways. Uh, I think that it kind of speaks to uh, the difference between, let's say, old Trek movies and new Trek movies. You know, there's a lot of uh, people, obviously, who say that these are bigger, flashier, everything. And, and you could say, like, well, I mean, that's the type of story that they're telling. But then when you see things like this, I think it kind of speaks more to um, the, the, the similarities and differences um, on an overall level. You know, when you see them in reinterpreting scenes into this 
style, it really sort of helps to speak to that style. You know, it's kind of like uh, really? like, like the, the what were you going to say? That I just find that a very funny analysis. It's like by translating them into this style, it shows you what the style is. In the same way that if you put a lamb underwater, it dies. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, maybe you which could shows that. you they're not supposed to be there. Well, maybe that's true, <laughs> and maybe maybe the problem with Into Darkness, if there is a problem, is that uh, they tried adapting something that should not have been adapted into the style. They should have gone a different route. And and in a lot of ways, I agree with that. You know, I mean, I, I like the parallels um, to some extent, but I also think that there are times where it's like, uh, that would have been better off if you would have tried something different, you know? And and there's there's a couple uh, th- that that are, are kind of interesting in that sense. Um, you know, one is is just the idea of can you have a movie where the protagonist and antagonist don't meet face to face today? You know that that one's sort of broad, but in in Wrath of Khan, if you look at that movie, Kirk and and uh, and Khan never actually meet face to face. Yeah, it's the it's thing that's come up in a million analyses of these things that yeah. that is a very telling example because everyone in, know, in Hollywood knows that you have to have like an actual on-screen confrontation, otherwise the drama doesn't work because that's what it all builds to. The hero and the villain have to be in the room together when the villain is vanquished. Mm-hmm. It's the way it always works, except it really doesn't need to work that way. But that is the way people think. And it's a very strange thing, but somehow that analysis, that particular appraisal of required dramatic elements became something that even like non-creators and non-critics have in their head. And people who have never thought about appropriate scenes or like the way drama works will actually walk out of a movie in which the hero and villain do not confront each other face to face and say, it's weird that they didn't do that. It's still good, but it's weird that they didn't do that. And why are they thinking like that? It's because everyone keeps talking about this kind of thing, and it really doesn't make any difference. I, I think that you're you're generally correct in that. Um, and the only thing that I would kind of say about that is that this isn't new. You know, this is something which goes back to well before uh, Wrath of Khan was made. And, in fact, there was originally a scene in Wrath of Khan where the two of them meet. Yeah, and then it became a scene in Star Trek Three, right? And and if you you know listen to, to to what that scene was, and and on our Wrath of Khan commentary on uh, Standard Orbit, uh, John Tenuto actually reads the scene uh, for us or a synopsis of it. It was really bad, you know. It doesn't make any sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. And but, but, but it's not. It's not like this is. Nobody's saying that this is new. I'm only saying that people who don't care about this level of story analysis didn't think this way before. Now it's actually become so so prevalent that people who have never thought about a movie in that way will actually – that thought will occur to them. Maybe. But at the same time, I think it is you know, more than anything, more than that being sort of representative of Into Darkness versus – uh, Wrath of Khan, I think 
Wrath of Khan was a very weird anomaly, even back in 1982. And there was no way that that was going to happen in Into Darkness. So now, let's talk about the end here. And basically what it boils down to is a fight between Spock and Khan, right? And that, like Lindelof is saying, is a rather small thing on a conceptual level, but it is expanded into, you know, being something on a garbage scow or whatever it is, uh, flying above San Francisco with a bunch of crazy stuff happening, and it's, it's very, very chaotic and crazy and, and big, right? Set against the backdrop of ships crashing into, you know, cities and, and everything. Well, no, the ship's already crashed into the city. Right. It's, it's just, it's a, it's a fight on flying cars. Yeah. Like, after, in, after, like in Attack of the Clones. After a ship, after a ship crashes into a city, mm, or like the Fifth Element, yeah, or anything with cars that fly. So, um, what what do you think about that? What the fight on the floating garbage thingy? I guess first off, what do you think about? Um, I guess I guess we can take it small and then get bigger. Or do we start big and get small? That's what she said. I think that we can address this in any order we choose because there are no rules to this anymore because I've seen Into Darkness and there's no need to structure anything at this point in time. Okay, okay, then let's... let's Structure is out of style. Okay, let's talk about this first then. Um, The idea of uh, ending your movie with a fist fight between Spock and Khan. Obviously, this is limited to Star Trek movies. Sure. Because well, well, that, be, that would be a really weird thing to between, do at the end of a James be, Bond movie. Between protagonist and antagonist. Oh, okay. okay. That would be a normal thing to do at the end of a James Bond movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that that's totally normal. It happens all the time. I don't even question the logic of it most of the time. Although every once in a while, I do find it odd that they have this additional ending after essentially the story is concluded. Like, essentially the story in that movie is, is, is done. And the fight between Spock and Khan is so that they can get some of his blood? Yeah. So that they can get some of his blood, so that they can inject some of his blood into Kirk, well, so that Kirk will not die. Well, the fight, the initial fight, <laughs> is just Spock rage. Yes. And then the people on the Enterprise are like, don't you know go we need to go down there yes, and but, get but, Khan. But why why is this happening? Why like if if Spock had just killed Khan mm-hmm. Well then why did why that even happen? Like oh, why yeah. why 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 can't they like just shoot him from space? Or wake up. They have the spaceships. Well they don't want to vaporize <laughs> him. You know, I've I, I no man, that's ridiculous. There's there there are a million things wrong with it, and it's basically just it. It actually feels like this is this does not need to be here at all. See, I'm okay with with the fight. You know that 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 doesn't bother me at all because I, I like the idea of Spock just flipping out, like this being the thing that pushes him over the edge, and then he just goes down there to beat the crap out of Khan. This is the thing that pushes him over the edge. Yeah. Because apparently he has to be pushed over the edge once a movie. 
I don't think that he does have to be pushed over the edge once a movie. I think that it's interesting that he he was pushed over the edge. I think that that's perfectly fine. I I like his story arc as a character. I I think that there's some logic gaps in terms of why do they need Khan alive? Why do they need Khan's blood? Also, why is Kirk, you know, being brought back to life with blood? Everything about this part of that movie is ridiculous. It is ridiculous that Khan flies a spaceship into San Francisco. I, no, that, I don't have a problem. With a, a spaceship, I, sh- I might add, with many, many weapons that he could use from space. Well, no, because the, the, <laughs> the, the ship is basically dead in space. Yes. So he, he doesn't actually, even know that he can crash it into San Francisco. He doesn't know that he can crash it into San Francisco? No, like they say, hey, he's like, fly it into San Francisco, and the ship is like... Um, I don't think I can do that. Yep. Do you want me to try anyway? And he's like, yeah, try. Yeah. 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 You, you, you don't find that ridiculous? No, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is is basically the stuff surrounding, basically anything that has to do with Kirk coming back to life. That's the part that I don't like. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I, the way, the this is this is a frustrating thing. Like when you like when when I'm talking about this, like I'm saying, like there there are options available here. You got you got the script in front of you. The movie is not done. There are options here. And when you write a line in order to justify why Khan is flying a spaceship into San Francisco, mm-hmm. rather than doing something that Khan would actually do, like bide his time and attack when it's appropriate. He's essentially a guy who is designed to be strategic. No, but his his strategy, I mean, we we can get into this, you know, it would take forever to to go through this, but he's he's at the end. He's been defeated. That him f- sh- flying the ship into San Francisco is the equivalent of him setting off the Genesis device. That, yes, but the, I'm saying like this is a decision that they made. They made the decision to have more happen. To have oh, yeah. more stuff happen at a point when, essentially, the only thing that can now happen is an action sequence. It is the only available possibility because every other possibility is that the movie's over. Maybe. But to me, they earned that through Spock's arc throughout the movie. Okay. Like, I'm okay with that. But regardless, regardless of that. You might need to let me... Borrow your telescope so I can see that arc. What do you think? What do you think or about microscope? Yeah, yeah, microscope. What do you, What do you think about uh, the idea of blowing that up to something of such a massive scale? Blowing that that fist fight up to such a massive scale, um, and yet not uh, making the stakes end of the world stakes. So you're saying if. Khan and Spock got into their Voltron suits and fought it out well, what in I'm deep space. Is, Let's say on the moon. Okay, well, no, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, um, okay, so you could have them fight in an underground tunnel with some fencing swords. Or you could have them fight above San Francisco in this crazy action sequence. Do you or have, on that Silver Cup building in New York. Do you have a problem with with them making the scope of this fist fight so large it's really not a big action sequence it's i mean it it, it, it is it is essentially a, a, like a tiny little fight like it is it is it is essentially a 
let's say, kickboxing match. Right. On what would be considered essentially around the size of a ring. Yeah. You would have such a match in. Right. And the only thing that makes this big in scope is that instead of an audience, there are green screens. And instead of seeing the green screens, we see buildings whizzing by. Yeah. And I guess that's that's what I like about it. You know, that that it, it is basically that. It sounds like you don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that either. I don't have a problem with the scope. But I have now, a problem with it being pointless. Okay. And, that, and a little fair. silly. Okay, that's and at this point, honestly, why are we still watching this? Okay, <laughs> that's fine. Now, now, how about my my second part to that question was how about the fact that they chose to end it with a fist fight, and they did not say make bring in the Klingons and make it all about like end of the world sort of apocalyptic stuff, much like they did in the first movie. Do you appreciate that, or do you, or is that not really a problem? For you either way it's sort of irrelevant on both counts okay. the the movie was not in a position to justify this particular fight the, the fight doesn't really feel motivated it sort of comes out of nowhere and it doesn't really serve much of a purpose it's it's certainly not thematically motivated the the motivation might be justified from spock's point of view but spock's involvement in this is almost peripheral to the central issues. And it is sort of forced that this thing happens at all. Whereas in another movie where, like Gladiator, which also has huge action set pieces and ends with two guys punching each other. Mm-hmm. Except in that movie, that is essentially the, the, the physicalization. It's the embodiment of the entire dramatic conflict. It's one guy with power essentially trying to express his dominance over somebody who is better than him. And the better man just essentially has been spending the entire movie getting slapped around by this guy with all this power and all this res- all these resources and all this 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 authority and and this fight actually demonstrates that he is a petty foolish man and the hero dies. And in and in this fight he he loses the fight, but it, it expresses just how petty that leader is. And his bizarre sacrifice actually reveals the leader to be the problem. And it's a very significant thing in that movie. It, it is thematically motivated. It's appropriate. When that fight occurs, it is exactly what needs to happen. It is exactly the right thing because the entire movie was building to that moment when the guy no longer was able to hide behind anything and had to go in and directly face him. That confrontation was earned over the course of over an hour and a half of movie. This one is not earned by basically anything. Okay. All right. Um, I I think that is kind of a different scenario than that, but uh, that's fine. Um, And I don't have a problem with what's in Into Darkness on that, on, 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 in terms of that stuff. But... Theme. But one, one of the interesting things, which, <laughs> which I do think is, is weird, uh, is, you know, there's a lot of people who say, like, oh, look, this is just, like, Wrath of Khan on steroids, and it's big and bulky and unwieldy, and it doesn't work. Um, I don't generally... I don't know who's saying that. I, I generally don't think that that is true but 
there is one instance where I, I see it as sort of like crystallizing that idea, and I do have a big problem with it. And that's the part where they're trying to restore power, you know? Yes. And, and Kirk goes into the, into the room, and instead of it being, you know, Spock, you know, lifting up a thing and, and basically fighting extreme elements, it's Kirk needing to physically kick something back into place right Mm -hmm. and that to me does not work at all in this movie like i think it's way more effective in wrath of khan because it's believable you know the stakes are at a level where you can say like well this is something that he can do it's it's not so much about it being physically taxing as it is about it being um you know a, a sacrifice which is being made in order to accomplish this goal you know it's also it's also very clearly something that is actually normally done yeah. by people like it is, right. it is it is a room that is that is used for this yeah. particular it's purpose like, it's be- like we need to push this button it's not the only thing stopping us is the radiation is the fact that going in there is going to kill us it's well, not it, it, well we need to get in there and then we need to move this thing which does not seem like it can be moved by a human being. Well, there are there are plenty of logical arguments for that situation making sense in Wrath of Khan, and the, the the logic of like a thing that is normally done by a person is now not possible because of damage, and that makes sense because I mean we've seen like nuclear power plants; they have these scenarios where something happens and somebody needs to do something, and essentially, if the containment or cooling fails, people get killed. And so this is a room that essentially serves as the very last barrier of containment, and this is the the only way to keep like to keep the ship from blowing up is to shut it off. Mm-hmm. And and this is a room where where that shut off happens. The room is locked down. You can't change it. The ship is going to stop. And in the context of the movie, that is the problem because it's about to be destroyed by a gigantic super bomb thing. So they do sacrifice in order to leave. And it makes sense. It's all logically consistent. In Into Darkness, nobody ever goes in there. It's, it's absurd. If you, were, if you were actually interacting with that hardware at all, you were doing it with some sort of like power loader-esque machine. Yeah. It is clearly not meant to be handled in this way. And it's all very strange. And just the idea that Kirk would know to navigate his way into this place and then line that thing up, nobody ever would actually do that. Yeah, I mean, I guess it it was obvious enough from looking at it that that's what the problem was. But I don't know. To me, that was a case of, that was the one case of it making the movie too big. Well, I mean, to me, it's the equivalent of like, like your car stops working and you open the hood and you see a cable very obviously not connected to something and a nozzle that fits that cable perfectly. And you're like, oh, my God, because if it wasn't that, I don't know anything about cars. But I mean, there's there's (laughs) windows looking in there. That that to me isn't the problem. The problem is that, yeah, it does seem too, too impossible to the point of being implausible. And I know in a movie which is filled with things which are implausible, that's weird to say, but to me, that idea was sort of crystallized here, and I think it was unnecessary. And that's like the one scene where it does really bother me. Um, I mean, unless you I count- consider that essentially like a metaphorical representation of the entire process of turning one thing into another thing in this situation. And, and, that's, and that's fine. You know, I mean, like, I, I can see metaphorically how it works, but I think that... Um, 
it it takes me out of the movie every time I see that because I always look at that and say like he's not going to do that. There's no way he can do that, and then he does it, and it's like oh he did it. Well that's weird. Okay, but um, but you know that's that's my one problem with that. I don't like him coming back to life. I guess that's kind of an extension of that, but you know whatever. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> So anyway, it's really nice how it's not even like you need to do anything to the blood. You just literally pour the blood into somebody. Well, we don't know. We don't know what he was doing to that blood. We know what he was doing to the blood. He, no, he revived a triple by shooting blood into it. Well, we don't know what he did with the blood. We know that he says like it literally is is the blood. I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to watch it again because he's obviously running like a lot of weird things. Like maybe when he injected the triple with the blood, it didn't work at first, and then, but you see like con measuring out things and stuff like that and in his lab so who knows but regardless of that it doesn't matter okay any final thoughts on damon lindelof's contribution to into darkness i know it's kind of hard to separate him from the other writers but so any final thoughts i guess then on the writing of of into darkness or the idea of spectacle creep okay like all of these things are the same problem like this, this whole franchise is an example of this concept of spectacle creep. That I mean, it's a very serious concern, and it wouldn't be if the audience actually thought about it. If people actually went into movies and came out of them and actually thought critically about what they had seen and whether or not it was satisfactory, whether or not they found it entertaining, then this wouldn't be a problem. And because people don't act that way, people don't actually think like that, and people go to see movies because essentially they want to be entertained, and their entertainment really does actually kind of usually not go any further than the all-on-the-surface narrative. Anything else is usually almost, almost universally ignored or unnoticed. So it's not surprising that we have this problem of spectacle creep because ultimately the audience is not being educated in thinking critically. And that just makes sense because it's a, it's a system and eventually all systems break down and the audience is not being demanding enough to their art. Yeah. And it's just because when you're not demanding, you get more money, which is why America is failing. I mean, I can kind of see that, but at the same time, I... Uh think it's by no means limited to star trek of course oh no 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 it's no that's the thing that's the thing like i i don't have a problem with this movie this this new star trek franchise any more than i have any problem with anything else the problem with this new franchise is not that it's uniquely bad it's that it's contemporary and the contemporary like like level of of discourse is Unintelligent and well, I, I see. I don't flawed. even. I don't think it has anything to do with it being contemporary. I think it has to do with it being, you know, of this uh, genre and of this type of of movie. I mean, I think that lots of times we're looking at the past with rose colored glasses and looking at all of the great uh, summer blockbusters uh, that that have come out. Like no, 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 no. I am not saying that it is worse 
than the average summer blockbuster. I am saying that these movies are actually coalescing into something very similar. We see the same plot threads happen well, over and over I, I again. I think that that lots of that's true of the past too. It's just that you know, kind of the cream rises to the top, and we no. Forget it's not about a question of cream. The problem, the problem. That's not the issue. Isn't that things were better because they were not. Things were not better in the past. They made tons of mistakes. The reason that the older movies are not better than the current movies. It, it, and that's obvious. The older movies of the, of the summer blockbusters of the, of the past are not any better than summer blockbusters of now, but they fail in different ways. No, but see, that's that's the thing is I don't think that they do. I don't think that there is, you know, there, it's coalescing into one similar thing. I think that it's, you know, we remember, like I was saying, we remember all of the the good alien it's not movies. About good. It's not about good. But what I'm saying is... Okay, we remember all of the good alien movies and we forget all of the ones which were exactly like it, which were bad. And so when we look back at it, we think there was that alien movie that was cool. There was that superhero movie that was cool. Now we're getting a million superhero movies and they're all bad. And we're getting a million alien movies and they're all bad. You know, I I, I do think that there is sort of a, um, a, a, a remembrance of the past which uh, is omitting some details. And I don't think that there's anything worse about movies today. No, it's not about worse. I'm not saying that it's worse. I'm not talking about the quality of the movies. I'm talking about the situation. And I think that you are missing a very vital aspect of this. Yeah. That that movies actually have evolved. The medium has actually changed. It always does. And it, it has always been work. It has always worked like this. Essentially, at the beginning, they didn't know what they were doing, yeah. and they did books, right, right, right. But, but as movies, and we have reached a point where that is not even a possibility. And that makes sense. It makes sense that the medium would evolve, but it actually does have a particular arc. And as the medium gets what you might use the word perfected. All of the possible failures, the obvious failures, have been removed to the point now that there are pre-conscious filters on even the ideas of maybe doing a movie like X plus X equals something. That is what I'm saying. Like Those things are absolutely true. It is obviously true. Look at the history of any random genre over... A long period of time, and like by long, I mean like maybe thirty years, you will see a radical transformation from a smattering of garbage of various types to a very consistent and similar repeating concept. Right. I I totally understand what you're saying. I just don't think that that is what's going on. Okay, I think it would be an interesting thing to study because I think you'd be surprised. Okay. Well, maybe we can talk about that on off topic one day. All right. And, and as far as my final thoughts on, on Into Darkness, I, I do like this movie quite a bit um, in terms of the writing. I think that for the most part, it's very solid. I think that the problems that I have with it do come towards the end and are more associated with uh, the need to end it in a clean fashion um, than uh, just doing what makes the most sense logically and um emotionally so that's the big problem that i have with it logically and emotionally yes logically and emotionally 
So that's the big problem that I have with it. Those are probably mutually exclusive terms in this context. No, I don't think so. Logically, it would make sense to keep Kirk dead. Emotionally, <laughs> it would also make sense to keep him dead. But instead, they bring him back to life because you can't kill Kirk and you got to have a happy ending. <laughs> so. Oh, it would have been amazing if he just died. I, it Immediately. Would've, it would have been amazing. That no, I mean, great. like, he didn't even get born in the first movie. No. So, anyway, that's my thoughts on that. Um,. Now, before we we uh, we leave, or before we start wrapping things up, um, I do want to mention that uh, a couple weeks ago, um, one of the Star Trek Next Generation's directors, Robert Weimer, I believe it's pronounced, passed away. Uh, Rick mm-hmm. Berman tweeted a thing about it. I guess he was one of Rick Berman's mentors, having worked with him on The Big Blue Marvel as a writer, director, producer. And uh, he's done a number of things. In Star Trek, he directed eight episodes of Next Generation. They were Who Watches the Watchers, Data's Day, Violations, Schisms, Lessons, Interface, Parallels, and Masks. Whoa! What? Do those all end with sibilant sounds? No, Data's Day doesn't. Oh my god, what's with that, though? Almost. It's weird, right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, like, you look at those... It's like Data's Day, Lessons, Parallels. Like, those are all awesome awesome episodes. And Schisms, too. You know, Masks, granted, maybe the worst episode of Next Generation. Okay, that's ridiculous. Okay. That's ridiculous. It is the, it is, it is the episode of Next Generation that, on the surface, seems like an incredibly bizarre thing to do. Yeah. And underneath the surface, there's a cool idea there. Maybe. And maybe someday they'll get it right. Maybe. But I mean, like, I love Data's Day, you know, and Lessons and Schisms. I love everything about Data's Day except for the dramatic stakes. Yeah, that's the one part that that doesn't really work. He also did an episode of Deep Space Nine, Profit and Loss. And uh, he directed um, a movie. He wrote and directed a, a movie called Somewhere Tomorrow with Sarah Jessica Parker. He directed another movie called Anna to the Infinite Power. He did uh, a TV movie called The Night Train to Kathmandu. And he directed episodes of Superboy, Sequest 2032, and New York Undercover. So uh, just thought it was a good idea to acknowledge him. And uh, yeah, he will be missed. Yeah, that's too bad. Well, it's been fun talking about Damon Lindelof's work on Star Trek Into Darkness today, but that's just one of the Trek topics we've been talking about on Trek FM. Here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. We're on the same page. Yes. High five. This is creepy. Yeah. <laughs> we actually did it, we too. We tried you guys to do a high it. five through the camera, so that was <laughs> embarrassing, but whatever. <laughs> Continuing mission. I feel like this, like that's a really great idea for a stoner movie. So maybe for the next project, I don't know. And the name of the film will be Giant Green Lazy Susan. There you go. Earl Grey. VHS Star Trek interactive oh, board game. I'm so glad you the brought humans this have up. taken over the Enterprise. You now have thirty minutes to stop me. <laughs> the Ready Room. Is I think your compassion. But this species is overriding your judgment. And Archer says, my compassion guides my judgment. Mm-hmm. 
And I really liked that line because I felt like that really just kind of sums everything up. The orb. So imagine we didn't have Opaka. Imagine we had Kai Win from the very beginning. How do you think the setup of the series would have been? Axonar, the official podcast. So is the full-length Axonar going to be in the same style, the same documentary style as Prelude to Axonar? And the answer is no. No, absolutely not. Axonar itself will be a full-length movie, a feature movie, just like you would, you know, any other Star Trek movie or other movie. To the journey! Cable is definitely more suited toward a niche show like Star Trek is. Compared to broadcast, yes, I think it's... Yeah, absolutely. It's much more probable that we would see it on, say... Uh, AMC than we would on NBC. Commentary, Trek Stars. When Star Trek 2009 came out, I made a joke to somebody at some point that J.J. Abrams got all of his lens flares from Close Encounters surplus. Yeah. But they just didn't use them all, and he just bought them at some sort of, maybe a garage sale or something. Warp 5. You know pretty well which way the insectoids and the reptilians are... Yeah are going to come down on any issue it's it's left up to the indecisive one instead of the the 12 angry men it's the six angry zindi melodic treks now as i mentioned he wrote and conducted the scores for two episodes of star trek enterprise in the second season they are kanamar and regeneration and regeneration is one of the best episodes of star trek enterprise ever in my humble opinion literary treks we're trying to keep it light. We're trying to keep it personable. We're trying to keep it fun. If Vanguard, you know, was all about being the Battlestar Galactica reboot of, of Star Trek, this is more about trying to be the Eureka or the Warehouse 13. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows to get in on the daily Trek talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and in the Windows podcast directory for Xbox and Zune. Or you can stream from the website. Just visit trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get all the links. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek Stars, to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive, Federation, and Spock's World, Audible has something for everyone. Um, I know that we read this last week, but you know we can't get enough of it because it's so good, and that is um, Star Trek Into Darkness. The novelization by Alan Dean Foster, narrated by Alice Eve. The description, uh, as it appears on audible.com, is pioneering director J.J. Abrams has delivered an explosive action thriller that takes Star Trek into darkness. When the crew of the Enterprise is called back home, they find an unstoppable force of terror from within their organization has detonated the fleet and everything it stands for, leaving our world in a state of crisis. With a personal score to settle, Captain Kirk leads a manhunt to a war zone world to capture a one-man weapon of mass destruction. As our heroes are propelled into an epic chess game of life and death, love will be challenged, friendships will be torn apart, and sacrifices must be made for the only family Kirk has left, his crew. And you can get this book for free since you listen to commentary Trek Stars on 
Trek.fm. Sacrifices must be made. Unless you've got some blood lying around. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read and that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm and we thank Audible for supporting commentary, Trek Stars, and Trek.fm. And lastly, there's another way that you can directly help us keep commentary Trek stars coming to you each week, and that is by adopting some aliens. Aliens? Well, illustrations are... anyway. Oh, that's not as If you go to trek.fm slash donate, you'll find eight original alien illustrations by Toba Ushi, who does most of the artwork you see on our website. They're available as both badges and art prints, and there are different contribution levels for you to choose from. Just let us know which you would like and in which format. Again, you'll find them at trek.fm slash donate, and your support helps us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring the show to you each week. All right. Well, that's it for Star Trek Into Darkness. Next week, we're going to take a look at Damon Lindelof's other uh, movie, which he, he has written in the past uh, year or so, and that is World War Z. 